0: My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at the church, if we haven't had a chance to meet. Good morning. Nice to meet you. A couple things to follow up as we get started this morning, to follow up on actually what Matt just mentioned. Um, But we got a little bit of a technology morning here at church. So if you have uh, a phone with you, Brandon, here in a little bit, when he comes up and and teaches, is going to ask you to get your phone out. He's going to run a kahoot. And so if you haven't done a kahoot, uh, today's your day. So just get ready. Get your phone close by. You're going to have to scan something live. It's going to be great. So just get ready for that. Um, And then speaking of technology, uh, Matt just mentioned that we have some change coming up on the church uh, on the digital side of things. And so we know not every digital change uh, solves all of our problems, although we wish uh, that it would. But we do know that with each little change, we can get incrementally better. And so coming up, we've been doing some work as a church on our website. Uh, we're going to make a change there, and, we're gonna, we're, and it kind of comes with a comprehensive set of things. But one thing in particular that Matt noted was that it comes with a change in how we uh, do giving online. So if you're somebody who gives online, um, take note of that. If you're somebody who gives a reoccurring gift online, uh, take note of that. Um, if you go to the site right now, it's actually linked up. Uh, and ready to go, but we are having a couple of technical difficulties, as they say. So uh, maybe over the next week or so, you'll get an email, so just stay tuned uh, for that email coming your way. That'll explain uh, that we're ready to go, that that's all set up, and, uh, you know, and we're ready to roll forward. So with technology, also those incremental changes come with incremental problems, but we're figuring it out. So stay tuned on that, that's coming up, but keep that uh, on your horizon. So phone ready and upcoming change on online giving. Those are the two techie things this morning. With that, Uh, Let's open up uh, our Bibles and our scripture, and we're going to continue in John 17 like we've done the past couple of weeks. And uh, we're going to be with verse 21 this morning. Verse 21. John 17, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord this morning.
1: As we gather together, opening God's word, some of you are really aware that football started, and you're... Recording the game right now to watch later on in the afternoon. A couple things as we kind of share some church business. One of our dear sisters in the Lord went to be with the Lord, absent from the body. It's way better to be with the Lord, especially in her case. She was suffering from cancer, multiple sclerosis, and a bunch of other things throughout her year years with us, but she, um, she was here 2019 when I got here and was serving faithfully in every and any capacity she could when she could get a ride here because she was in a wheelchair and had a lot of challenges, but never without a smile and a willingness to engage in just some real conversations about God's love and, and believed but did as much as she could with as much as she knew about God's love to share it and was here opening up our, our bays in our warehouse, which gets a little cold in the winter. And so we'd have the heater cranking, bounce houses blown up, and the playhouse we used to have, play structure. And oftentimes no one would come. And I felt so bad. I'm like, man, here she is, like hustling, working, overcoming all these challenges to be here to help reach the community and no one wants to be reached. And sometimes families would come in and it'd be such a blessing to her, but um, she was willing to do anything and everything within her power to serve the body and serve the community and bring the gospel um, and so we're going to celebrate her life at 2 o'clock today, but be praying for her family and, and her husband she held on. And a lot of those conversations in the last six months were, man, I'm waiting for the Lord to work and save my husband. And as we know, the Lord is not slow as we count slowness, but we're, we're trusting God's timing with that. And as we get in today, we're talking about moving beyond belief into what we do. And And it was evident in her life that, well, she had questions like we all do. Where's God? What's going on? If God's a God of healing and hope, where's my healing? Because I'm running out of hope sometimes. And, and it was interesting to be reminded that, hey, God is going to heal you. You might just have to finish the race and get the new body in heaven before you get a, a healing. And, and oftentimes on this side, it's temporary healing. But no doubt her neighbors, as we saw, her life transformed by Christ and now she has that resurrected perfect glorified body we talked about last week that's promised in our growth state now as we're saints positionally growing you know progressively and then her glorified body she's enjoying so as we as we think about not only her example but Christ's example this morning what do you do with what you believe is is football the only difference between you and your neighbor. Is football the only difference between you and your neighbor? And as we, as we jump into the message today, we have a challenge to live as Christ. There's a guy who, who was challenged by his pastor to invite a friend to church, so he went to his neighbor, and he said, hey, would you come to church with me next Sunday? He said, well, why would I do that? And he's like, I know, I know, you got football, but you can record it like I do. You can just record your football games and come to church. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going We live in a townhouse. We share a wall. And and if you've ever been in a townhouse with a shared wall, it's like an amplifier, right? You hear everything on the other side of the wall. It's like, guys, did you not think like a little foam or a little more insulation, maybe another sheet of plywood at least to deaden the sound would? Nope. Okay. I guess, you know, the budgets are tight and you want to make every penny you can off those things. So he's like, look, I hear you yell at your wife like I yell at my wife. I hear you yell at your kids like I yell at my kids. And Really, the only difference between you and me is I'm at home watching football and you're at church. Like we believe, like the only difference is you believe a little different, but that's it. Like our behavior is the same. So why would I give up my Sunday morning sleeping in, getting my latte from my machine and watching football? Interestingly enough, this word Christian, where did it come from? Why, Why do we associate ourselves as Christians? Luke was the first one to to record the history. It it only shows up three times in the New Testament, which is probably the reason why so many people can can label themselves a Christian and and claim it, because you can define it and redefine it, and then we can define it and redefine it, and then together we can all kind of come to, hey, this makes us feel good, sounds good, and we're all Christians, and this is what we've all determined to redefine and reorganize what we, we feel is good. But really, what does it mean? to believe, and better yet, what does it look like to follow Jesus? See, when when Luke writes down the first time in history this word was used, it it was in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. In the end of the verse, it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The disciples, these these are people who followed the teacher from Nazareth. They followed Jesus, who was not just a teacher because he claimed to be Lord. So either he was Lord or he was lying, which there's other problems there, or he was insane, he was a lunatic. We all have to come to that challenge today. And that's when the first term they looked around, they said, okay, all these guys have interns, they all have disciples, but these disciples who follow this teaching from Nazareth, there's something different about them. They don't just believe, they actually do what Jesus said, and they look like Jesus. They act like him. Their desires are the desires of Christ, and they're laying their lives down for Christ. Sounds like they're being sanctified, like we talked about last week. Sounds like they're growing, and they had the, the challenge of how do we call, what do we call them because they're associated with Jesus. They were little Jesus. They were Christ-like, and that's where that Christian term comes from. It was actually derogatory Are we being that good of an example of how we live our lives, the the teachings of Christ are actually lived out through everything we say and do? As Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. That's a pretty huge task. Not only are we supposed to go, but we're supposed to go and teach people who don't know God to know God and then grow in the grace and the knowledge and be full of the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, and then obey everything. Oftentimes people come to me and go, Pastor, that was a hard word, I can't do those things. I know, exactly, neither can I. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in, this growth. It's huge, it's all about God growing you. And when you fail, you repent and come back and He forgives you, restores you, and puts you back on mission. That's why Peter denied Christ three times. To set an example for us as a church, what happens when I fail? What happens when you fail? Are we gonna just go, oh man, pastor's not perfect, let's get a new one, let's try again. Oh man, you failed, that's it, you're done, out. Where's grace? Where's grace, where's the repentance? That has to be a huge and a key part, and it's actually the only part when you look at Jesus. You see, Jesus is the perfect example of showing the gospel because he's so full of grace. We can define, redefine the term Christian until we're fine with what we're good with, but really it's it's without grace. It's always control and fear and manipulation. One of the most recent pastors came out who's received a recent amount of fame. He said, hey guys, this is controversial, but you actually don't go to hell because of sin. He said, I was like, what? Have you not read the Bible? He said you go to hell because you reject God. It's a desire to just walk away from God because it's all about you. And you have so much power, you guys don't realize how much power you have. That's why you go to hell. The interesting thing, if you read Romans, Paul is very clear, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus talks about sin so much, and the, and then Paul was discipled by Jesus. And that's where we read in our, our mission statement we're teaching through, John 17, our mission is Jesus' prayer for the church. It's not my idea, it's not a vision that God gave me or the elders, it's Jesus, the head of the church, saying this is what I'm praying for the church. In the last days, which if you look around, it's pretty clear we're in or we're entering, depending on what timetable you wanna to ascribe to, but Scripturally, we are here where where Jesus says, they need to be one and they need to be with me and and they need this oneness and they need the love. They need the unity and love because the world's gonna hate them as it hated me, but they know me because I'm there with them and they're gonna go and spread the gospel and they're gonna believe in me because you sent me. And it's, it's this dance. If you read John 17, it's this constant dance highlighting those three themes over and over and over, starting with knowing God's salvation Growing in that relationship with God and others is key, and then going out and spreading the gospel, and people would see that we're doing what Christ said, and that changed us. We see in our world where California governor uses a Bible verse to justify killing babies. It's loving one another to kill babies. We see the Pope, like I talked about a couple weeks ago, sitting down with the Imam and saying, hey, we're gonna create Chrislam, one world religion, where Jews and Muslims and Christians and..." Catholics, we're all gonna kind of be under this one faith. The problem is every time they leave Jesus out and they leave grace out and they leave repentance of sin out and that's why Jesus said, hey church, listen, Shh. you're gonna be deceived. Even if the elect could be deceived, focus on me. And more and more and more, we have to focus on Christ. And every time they, they say something like, you're not going to hell because of sin, you're going to hell because of your decision. Where's Jesus in that? He's not there. Sin isn't there, but Jesus shows up every time when you open God's word. And you see Jesus say, look, I've come to to make all the sad things come untrue. I've come to heal you. I've come to give you hope to the hopeless. I've come to restore the broken. I've come to pay the penalty for your sin. Believe in me, you'll be saved. The spirit seals us. And then he says, go, tell the world that's gonna hate you and kill you this message. And the early church, the disciples did that. And that's why they're like, who are we gonna, what do we call these guys? Because they're like dying left and right, but they keep loving us. What are we gonna do with them? We can't control them, we can't jail them, we can't kill them. The message keeps growing, because Jesus said the gates of hell will not stand against the church, which if you know anything about sports and football, he's saying the defense of hell is not gonna stand up against the offense of my church that I'm building, which should fire us up, because that means in our huddle on Sundays, we got plays to make throughout the week And we have the confidence that we will win because we're more than conquerors in Jesus. So God made us, we sinned, Jesus paid the price for our sin. He exchanged our sin-filled life with his perfect life. And now that's the life we live in Christ. And that's why we can go. Because I get it, some of you are hurt, you're coming in going, I don't know enough, pastor, I don't have the degrees, I don't spend the time, I don't have the gifting you have. I know. But thank God you don't because I can't do what you can do. I can't go to your office. I can't sit with your family or friends and share the way you can and say, look at my life. Look at where it was and look at what Christ did. Believe and be saved. And the beautiful thing is that we as a church will rally around each other and make up for the deficiencies. Because they said, look, like it is today, it was then. Becoming a Christian is easy. You can say I follow Christ. You can say I believe in Christ. But does your life show that you're following Him? Becoming a Christian is easy. It's free. It's simple. You can raise your hand, come down, get a free Bible. Oh yeah, I've said the prayer. I'm good. So many have said, "Yeah, I was good." Man, in my teens, I went to church, and my kids, my parents took me to church. But maybe when I'm 60 or 80, and I'm in a wheelchair, and like life's lame, then I'll go back to church. Like, but right now, I'm gonna do whatever I want. Like, becoming a Christian is easy and it's free. But following Jesus prioritizing Jesus' kingdom over ours, that's what costs, and it costs you everything. The one that incurred the greatest cost constantly is the one who makes the most impact, the greatest impact in God's kingdom. Jesus made this clear. His first sermon, his most famously quoted and arguably quoted out of context but least applied sermon was the Sermon on the Mount. The summary of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies, give away your stuff. When someone asks to borrow it, just give it away. If someone asks to borrow 50 bucks, give them $500. If someone says, hey, I'm gonna borrow your truck for the weekend, just hand them the keys with the pink slip. Like Jesus, what you uh, like? didn't you just come to save me? Like, I believe you're my savior. Like, let's just leave it there. What are you doing talking about like, who owns my house now? Like my friend was just gonna stay at it. I didn't know I needed to sign it over to him, Jesus. This is, this is America, okay? This is how we do things here. I don't know where you're from, like Galilee, just stay over there. This is weird. Like, I get hit in the face. I have the right to defend myself. We still have the Second Amendment for most of the United States to a degree. Like, I can defend myself. I'm not supposed to turn the other cheek. Wait, that's what you're telling me to do? Turn the other cheek? Make right my relationship with others before I can have a right relationship with God? Jesus says, hey... If you're standing in line to give an altar, to give a sacrifice on the altar, you're standing in line and it's been five hours and it took you two days to walk there and you finally get to be the next person in line and you remember, oh man, that thing I said to my wife yesterday, I think there's something wrong. You can't offer that sacrifice. Take your sacrifice, walk two days home, make it right, and then go back to the temple. You didn't always live near the temple. And Jesus says, if you're at the temple about to make a sacrifice and something's off horizontally, don't think you can come and just be like, hey God, what's up? We're good vertically, right? That's what I'm talking about. I know those losers. No, God said, I care so deeply about your relationships with others. You better be right with them before you step foot on my altar and offer a sacrifice. This is his sermon. Hey, you guys want to hear what I believe? Here's what we're believing. If you want to follow me as the teacher. You ready to go? The disciples were like, what did I, th- I was fishing and he asked me to follow him. I just thought it was a cool thing. Like I, I put in applications to all these other rabbis and they rejected me. Like I got in, it's better than Cuesta. Like I was gonna follow him. Like that's the cool thing. Like everyone thought this rabbi is this like up and coming guy and I got rejected by others. And now he's telling me to, if if I see a, a speck in my brother's eye, I have a log in mine I gotta remove. Like what is that? I have to chop my right arm off if it's causing me to sin? Like I didn't, that wasn't in the fine print. I was scrolling through and agreed to follow Jesus. He turned our entire value system upside down. You can read it all for yourself. That's just a summary of it. And then he talks about at the end in Matthew 8 or the end of 7, he finishes and the crowds are astonished at his teaching. Talks about judging others, the tree and its fruit, and he goes in after he does the mic drop, and everyone's looking at him, going, "Dude, this guy is teaching with authority. This guy has something to say that that no one said before, and the way he says it, it's not just something I I can believe. It's something that I have to truly receive, and it's going to change me. I know it. And so, so that at arm's length, it's the challenge to live as Christ as they had so do we have that challenge today. Because as we see in, in chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him as they should have. I mean, imagine, you know where you were on September 11th. You know where you were on, on that amazing experience, whether it was your, your wedding and, and the, the scene, the smell. and the, You're in the crowd that day. It's not just, hey, this guy's said something in, in a bullhorn or had a weird sign that had some interesting things downtown like, preacher on a sidewalk, but this is Jesus who just dropped the most powerful, simplest, clear, challenging sermon ever. The crowds are like, oh, we, I don't, yeah, I know I have that important meeting, but I know we're supposed to get married at five, but we're following him. Like that crowd is like, dude, Jesus, what's up? Like you just dropped all these truths. What's going to happen next? And they're waiting in that tension. Abolish the law, but fulfill it. Jesus just taught. And he did everything he said he would do right there. He said, I came so the world may believe in John 17 verses 20 through 22. I came that they would know that you sent me. I came, that there'd be this, I came that they would know that you sent me. I came that there'd be this oneness, there'd be this unity. I didn't come to abolish anything or do it. I came to fulfill it. I came to be God here in human flesh so that they could have access to you, the Father. I came. I left heaven and earth. He's the model for go. I wanted to talk about human missionaries and do these things. And as I looked and prayed, I'm like, no, this is our primary example. The head of the church who says go, it's his example we have to follow first and foremost before we look at Paul and these others. Jesus left everything so we could be one with the Father and we could have that glory that he wants to give us and that oneness. And so everyone's awestruck going, oh my goodness, he, he actually preached it and then he did what he said he would do. I haven't seen that before. Like that, he walks off stage, goes behind, and all of a sudden he's like, boom, heals a leper. And then the next thing that happens, we have to have a little context before we see the next character that shows on that comes up to Jesus kind of backstage. A hundred years before this, there's a Roman Pompey who desecrates the temple, the Holy of Holies. He goes in curious to figure out who the God of the Jews, who the God of Israel is. And he goes into the Holy of Holies behind that thick, over engineered curtain. And he pulls it back expecting to see something, but there's nothing. He's like, is there a statue? Is there an idol? What's here? And there's nothing. They just have uh, 2,000 talents of gold and some candles in the Holy of Holies. And he leaves with a 1,000 slaves in tow. So the Galilean, Judean area, they lost their independence and now they're forced to pay their taxes to a pagan government. So years later, Crassus shows up and goes in the temple, steals all the Jewish wealth from the temple. And then fast forward 40 BC, Herod the Great is crowned king of the Jews. Problem is he's not even a Jew. He murders multiple rabbis. His son kills John the Baptist. When Jesus was in his 20s, Pontius Pilate is the ruler of Judea and he is given credit for introducing crucifixion. So when Jesus is in his 20s, he sees this barbaric death penalty introduced of crucifixion. The Galilean and Judean area is continued to be ravaged and destroyed by Roman soldiers. Pilate steals money from the temple as any other Roman ruler, kind of military would, under their control. And, and he's so violent that he's actually called back to Rome and he commits suicide. So, so we see 18 verse five, or chapter eight, verse five of Matthew, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. A centurion is a Roman soldier, Roman general, he's over soldiers. And and the centurions were so, so brutal, they would often have their own men flogged and even killed if they were out of line. And they were the ones in charge of all of the abuse, control and stealing against the Jews. 10 to 15 years is when the first record of a centurion was to be stationed there. So this centurion was a local. He, he was a Gentile. He grew up in the region of, of Judea and uh, Galilee. And the interesting, just for the history buffs, I'm like, man, there's a local. You know that guy. You know, you grew up playing soccer with him and, and he was always on the other, you know, he was always in Templeton. You're in Tascadero and there's this rivalry or, or Paso in Tascadero or whatever. And and, and then he grows up and all of a sudden he's in the Roman army and he's persecuting the Jews and you're a Jew and the Jews thought Gentiles were dogs and the Gentiles were like, dude, Jews just hate us. So they thought Jews were racist. And we see with the woman at the well, she's freaking out because she's a Samaritan, a half Jew, a half Gentile. And here's a Jewish guy talking to her. And she's like, one, you're a dude. Number two, you're a Jew. And I'm like, what's going on? You're not supposed to talk to me. And the interesting thing in, in Luke's account, the Jews rally around this centurion and they say, hey, this guy built us a synagogue. He cares for our nation. So you have this plot that is as thick as mud. You're like, wait, this guy is like not a normal Roman, but yet he's a Roman who's associated with all of the hurt, all of the pain. If it's Jesus fully human and not fully God, then obviously he would start blasting Twitter, Facebook, blowing it up, doing a live video. This is the guy and these are the Romans who are responsible for my teenage mom having to give birth in the cave. She had a whole birth plan and we had to scrap that because the Romans and then they tried to kill me and we had to leave and go live in Egypt. It's all his fault. Let's attack the Roman centurion. That's what Jesus would have done in this, right? That's what we would expected. He's fully God though. And so everyone's like, oh my goodness, what's he gonna do? How is he gonna treat his enemy? Because he should be against him. And Jesus, fully man, is probably thinking, okay, if I, if I help this guy, I'm gonna lose my nationalist base because they're all against Romans. And if I help a Roman, then all the Jews are gonna abandon me. How, what am I supposed to do? But he's fully God and fully man. So then the centurion, was literally embodied everything a Jew was against. And Jesus looks at him and, and we've been there before hearing that question, hey, my, my servant is really sick and he's really suffering, suffering terribly, it says in verse six. We've heard that request before, haven't we? Hey boss, I know I wasn't the best, but I need a job recommendation. Really? You want a job recommendation for me? After you treated me horribly, you never showed up, you stole money from the company, and you were such an evil and devious employee to all the staff, you want a good recommendation from me? You've heard that before. Your friend or family member wants to borrow money for the 10th time, and you're like, dude, you said you'd pay me back, and I, I tried, you know, I prayed about it, I felt like God said okay, so I gave you more money, and you just keep taking it hey, can I just have another chance? Really, you want another chance? This is your sixth second chance. Like, I'm done. I'm cutting you off. We've heard this request before. Someone, hey, I'm really in a bind again. Can I just stay a couple nights over? Yeah, last time that turned into a year. Like one night, one week turned into one year, and you never offered to pay for anything. Not one utility, not one food, grocery list, grocery item. You didn't pay for a single thing. You just took advantage and took advantage. It's one thing to help a stranger. We're all about that. Oh, the person on the side of the road, or we go to LA and feed the homeless. Yeah, we'll go help strangers, but what happens when it's your family? What happens when it's your friend? Well, it costs you more, doesn't it? It's a lot harder. There's history there. Becoming a Christian is so easy, and it's become more and more easy as there's been this kind of carpool lane, there's been this lukewarm yeah, I'm a Christian, really? Yeah, I'm an American all, whatever, you know, that's what we do I don't have to go to church maybe once a year I mean, if, if it works out like if family doesn't have food planned or dinner on Christmas Eve, maybe I'll show up like what is a Christian? We have this tension, we have this problem because becoming one is easy I raised my hand, sure, I said yes but following Jesus, well that's not normal reading scripture and letting the spirit tell you what to do and then doing it no one does that No one does good to those who can't do good for themselves. No one does good to those who are doing evil to them. Jesus leans into this tension in Luke 6. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, no one's gonna take notice because that's what everyone's doing. He says, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So if you go to another country, another culture, and you're just doing good because people are doing good to you, you're doing good to them, but no one's gonna take notice, that's how it works. So why do we think we can live here and treat our neighbors and just say, hey, if you're gonna come over to my house and cook me dinner, then I'll go to yours house and cook, and we'll just invite each other over instead of looking at maybe people in our church and our community that need help and meeting their needs. When you see this, it, it really brings up the tension and the challenge that we need to lean into and go, okay, how's Jesus gonna respond? He responded to the leper one way, but what about the centurion? There's a little bit more weight, a little bit more problem here. If you do good only to those who do good to you, that's easy. It keeps with your tribe. It keeps with those you, you belong with. And when Jesus preached the gospel, preached that message on the Sermon on the Mount, Everyone's going, okay, that was good, but what is he going to do? Once we read what Jesus did, are we willing to follow Jesus? Are we willing to live as Jesus lived? Desire the things Jesus desires and think like Jesus thinks? Are we just going to simply be content believing rightly? You know, my daughter said to me last night, she's like, hey, tell me a story when you almost died. So I haven't too many of those stories to admit. But um, I told her another one and she she's like, Dad, that, you know, I was, I was a place I shouldn't have been with friends that probably weren't the best influence, right? And I always tell my kids, your friends are your future. So I got it right back. She's like, Dad, that was a horrible decision. You should not have been with those friends. Your friends are your future. It's all on your friends. I'm like, yeah, it is. Good job. And uh, yeah, I actually didn't hang out with them much after that. Like we were not doing things on a federal level we should have been doing. So uh, with a skateboard, it was weird. But um, looking back, it's like, what did I, What was I thinking? I was just going along. But I believed things right. I had good doctrine. And later we, we finished this Bible story. And, and I'm like, yeah, Jesus is in heaven on the throne, right hand of God, sitting on the throne. And she's like, nope, it says Jesus is in us. And she grabs the Bible and reads it. And she's like, see, it says right here, Jesus is in you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm getting called out left and right here, man. Watch my job. So it's so easy to have right doctrine, but are we living rightly? Are we doing the right thing? Because that's when it shows. And then we, we had this great conversation. She's like, I know I, I hang out with friends that aren't always the best influence, but I want to share the gospel with them and I don't want to change my friends. It's the same tension I had. I was like, yeah, that's where I was. I didn't want to not go skateboard a ditch even if it was on federal land. like I'd find a way to get there. And maybe I'd get in trouble or shot, but hey, we, we made it out alive and didn't do it again. Learned our lesson. But we've all been there, where we believe the right thing, but does it control how we live? And we can, we can separate the two, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's the same. You have to be hold my glory and then go and do good to those, especially those who persecute you. Matthew 8, 6, we see, the centurion tells Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And he says that, he's probably like, oh, really? You know, the, the Jews that haven't had it super easy with the Romans in control either. They've been suffering as long as they can remember. And now you want a Jew to help you and your suffering servant. I feel really bad. You, you've walked into this season where your servant's suffering but he chose to do good to someone who represented the, the empire that brought so much suffering and evil to his people and to his nation and introduced crucifixion. And Jesus said, okay. And he said, no, no, look, I know you're a man of authority. You don't have to come to my house. You can just say it and he'll be healed. And Jesus responds and says, this guy has the greatest faith I've ever seen in all of Israel. What? This is the enemy of Israel. This is a Roman who Jesus is saying, no, he's had the greatest faith that I've seen. And Jesus says, look, a bunch of the, the guys and gals who think they're in because they're born a Jew, they're going to hell. But those who are not Jews, the Gentiles, they're gonna come and they're gonna have this feast and they're gonna enjoy the celebration in heaven. And Jesus just drops this on them. What? It's not just about having right belief. It's not being born at a certain time to a certain family, it's literally believing that Jesus and him alone is the savior of your sin. And that the Holy Spirit pushes that sin out constantly, fights against that sin in you, so that all that's left is thinking, acting, desiring like Christ. And then you can love like Christ and acknowledging his authority in your life. The centurion totally got it. He's like, you have the authority to do whatever you want, I shouldn't even be talking to you right now. I get this whole tension, historical problem, culturally, religiously, but I acknowledge that your Lord, everything you said is true and you can help me in this situation. Jesus says, I know, it's done. And he goes on to, to Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law. It's just, you know, all in, a, all in a little 10 minute conversation. How's your, how are your 10 minute conversations going? Like I read that and I'm like, wow, Jesus, talking about being ready at every and any moment to bring the glory, to bring the hope of salvation. Who knows who God's gonna put in your path this week? Who knows what God's love is gonna require of you this week? That's our second point. When we know God and we come to make it known that God sent his son and they can know God, the second thing is God's love requires us to be one. His love requires us as the church to be one And as we're one, the 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 world takes notice because they're like, there's not a group of believers that just believe the right thing. They're actually doing good to those, especially those that do evil to them. It's easy to be a Christian and slap a label on us. Back in the day when people didn't care about putting bumper stickers on their car, now everyone's like, dude, my Tesla is not going to get a sticker other than the ones that came. Like we're going to keep this thing clean. Like I remember back in the '90s, I was like, wait, slow down, slow down. Oh man, you pulled the lane. I was trying to read. I got like two stickers read. Like what was the rest of them? But then I saw these people put like fishes and all these things and like, and it became this like war of stickers. And I was like, I don't read anywhere in here that Jesus wants us to be known by our t-shirts or bumper stickers because it was all about what we believed. And it still is. We put all our beliefs out there. We just moved from our bumper stickers to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But does your neighbor really know that you're full of God's love or is it just the difference is football when you watch it? Is that really the difference? It's easy to go do for a stranger, but what about the family, friend, or neighbor that's offended you or hard to love? Are you doing good to them? It's easier to do good for those who look like us, think like us, live like us, agree with us. It's so easy. But what happens when it's a centurion? What happens if it's the guy that God says, hey, this is your enemy, do good to them? This is the one you vowed never to pray for. He's at the top of your prayer list. She's at the top of your prayer list. Really, Lord? So easy to believe right things about you, but I'm supposed to do right too? It's easier to claim that you're a Christian than it is to be a follower of Jesus. So we we said we're gonna have this digital thing with your phone, so we've been talking a lot and putting this wheel up and we have a QR code where we're gonna see where you are on the wheel. So this is just that diagnostic kind of description of where you're at in your discipleship journey so you could take a picture of that and we broke the the four quadrants up and in the first one there's spiritually dead maybe you walked into church for the first time maybe it's the first time in a long time and you're going man I didn't know that I'm a sinner I didn't know that if I say think and do things against God that means I'm going to be put in a place apart from God called hell forever and I'm hearing that or maybe you you came back and you knew that but you didn't believe and you're going, man, I, it's true. There's a connection between what I believe and what I do and I need to do good to others. And that first step is belief. That first step is being an infant, spiritually speaking in Christ, knowing enough that you're a sinner in need of a savior. The next step is a child where you're saying, no, I, I know I need to grow and I'm aware of some things. I've learned how to read my Bible on my own. I've learned how to, to do a devotion and I have these new habits, I stopped cussing, I stopped looking at things on the internet, I'm still growing in that, still falling, still struggling. And then the young adult is where you're starting to be aware of needs around you. And so you can vote on there one through five where you're at on the wheel. And as you guys are voting, figuring it out, look at you guys, man, you're so boom, boom, boom. So it's kind of cool to see where we're at because I get the privilege when I talk to you and, and in conversations putting this wheel out so quickly, fingers start pointing where they're at on the wheel. People are like, You can't do that, Pastor. That's asking. It's like, No, it's nothing to be ashamed of. This is where you're at today. And then we're acknowledging and asking God to grow you because as you hear the Sermon on the Mount, as you read scripture, God has a plan and purpose to grow and use you. And it's with the church. You know, we had a lady come in on Sunday. I said, hey, a tree fell and smashed into my apartment and I, I we can't go there, we're kind of homeless, we're in between, we need food, we need clothes, we need this, this, and, and the church rallied. We got a, mi- a meal train set up, we got women's ministry on Tuesday, announced it, money was raised, maternity clothes were given because she's pregnant, and it's all these things, and then suddenly I'm talking to someone who knows her and is like, hey, I don't know if you heard about this pastor, and I'm like, yeah, I did, and the church rallied. That's the body. Jesus is the head and we're the church. We're not supposed to show up and believe right things. We're supposed to go do good to others throughout the week because we believe right things. Because we're full of the Holy Spirit, we know it's His kingdom, not ours. The money in our bank account, when Jesus is like, hey, if someone asks you, give it, because it's always been His, we just changed our perspective and oriented rightly to understand He gave it to us to be a blessing to others. But that doesn't happen naturally. You don't come in and go, yeah, I want to become a Christian and I want to give my house to the church. You guys can use the mortgage, sell it, whatever, grow the church, grow the kids' ministry. That's not natural or normal, but the Holy Spirit does that kind of stuff when you're being discipled and you grow and all of a sudden you're like, dude, I'm a giver. I just want to give resources. I just want to, I'm a prayer. I'm a prayer warrior. I just want to pray. Put me on the prayer list. I'm going to pray for those people. I love to serve and, and disciple and help people get, maybe it's a new believers class. You're like I am coming back starting to believe again for the first time, or I'm starting to believe for the first time and I need someone to walk with me through that. We met a guy a couple weeks ago. He said, hey, I'm here and I'm a parent. I'm already on the wheel as a parent. We got to get this class going. We got to get this happening. And I'm like, perfect, we've needed that. And we need that resource to grow. But unless we're honest with where we are, maybe you're a child and you're like, I need someone to walk with me through this. So we see behind us, we got a lot of, we got a lot of young adults and a good amount of children that need to grow. And praise God, we got some infants, which A lot of churches love infants. Who doesn't love an infant, right? They're cute, cuddly, snuggly. Yay, new life. It's so exciting. And you can kind of control them really easily, right? It's like, hey, you're going to eat now. You're going to sleep now. You're going to get changed. And then we're going to kind of... But the children and the young adult, that's where it gets a little crazy, right? It's like, hey, I have these weird thoughts or I want to do this and we need to change everything. And why are we eating steak and hamburgers for dinner? We should have ice cream all the time. That's children and young adults, right? It's like, ah, do you understand? Like we could be in Mexico forever. Like, why would we ever leave Costa Rica? There's great surf, the weather's warm. It's like, well, there's a church here that needs to grow and some families need to be cared for here. We can't just stay there the whole time. But in that growth stage, they have this experience and it becomes all about that. And so the mature believer has to walk alongside and go, I know that was a great experience. Let's keep focused on Jesus. Because even as we grow, we can make those things replacements for Jesus. And we have to, the main thing I think as disciples is we have to teach the next generation how to suffer, especially in America, because we don't grow up with that naturally built in. But Jesus says, hey, you're gonna follow me and you're gonna die for my name, let's go. And the disciples say, let's do it. I don't know if we're ready for that. Like if we're honest, like if tomorrow we die for Christ, are we ready saying, no, I've been living for Christ and I'm ready to go meet him, this is great. But we see the discipleship wheel The relational transition that took place from fishermen following Jesus, denying Christ three times in Peter's occasion, and then being restored to ministry and laying his life down, that was through relational discipleship. That was through each other compensating for each other's weaknesses, praying for another, administering gifts, and and the leaders teaching, and, and us as the church working together. And there's a summary profile in your notes because we've been talking about this and we're committed to making disciples because as I shared, it's, it's you that do the work. And I'm in it with you. We together as the church do the work, building one another up in unity and in love. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this. I think he's meditating on John 17 because it's the same dance of the church being built up in love. If you have a need, I have a gift to meet that need. If you're hungry, I have food, here you go. If you're naked, here's some clothes." And James loses his mind. He's like, I cannot believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and here people are claiming to follow him, but really they just believe these things. They're not caring for the orphans and widows. They're not counting it joy when suffering and trials come of various kinds. Read James. He's like, you guys wanna follow my brother? Then be excited to suffer, it's awesome. And look, there's a a widow. What are you doing? Why are you leaving? No, go feed her, clothe her. Make sure she's good. Care for the orphans and widows. That's what the church is here to do. Stop trying to outsource it to orgs and governments. That's our job. We're the only place to offer the hope that Jesus handed us and said, here's my glory. Are you gonna persuade people to see how good it is to follow me? Even though this world's hard, dark, and there's suffering, He said, go and teach them to obey. That's a huge task and I'm excited because I get to do it with you guys. I I get it why pastors quit because they think it's all on them and they have a a community that tells them it's all on them and there's no grace and there's no prayer and saying, hey, we got elders, we have deacons, we have men and women who are gonna step up and say, we can't hire a kids person right now, but we're gonna volunteer that. We can, we can put our priority on, on kids and families. And man, there's a need. We're going to do this, Pastor. We're, we're going to rally around. It's not on you to figure it out. We're going to figure it out with you. And that's why the discipleship wheel is so key. Because we have to figure out where we are and who can pour into us. And then look around and say, okay, who am I going to pour into? And that's where God grows us. So we cannot be content. The third point is to not be content to know and not to do. C.S. Lewis said, we value people and acknowledge the dignity that's assigned to men and women by God. That's great to believe that, but what are you doing with that? Are you following Jesus? So often we don't act on what we claim to believe because it costs us something. That's the reality of the gospel that's so often left out. Hey, come believe. God will save you. He loves you. Well, it's about time someone acknowledged how awesome I am and loves me. That's the American gospel. And then money and and ease is going to come with it. Jesus says, die to yourself daily. Take up your cross. Be counted as a criminal because you're going against the laws of this world and the laws of nature. You're loving those who hate you. You're praying for those who are persecuting you. When someone asks you for something, you're just going to give it to them. And that's going to drastically, radically just blow their mind because that's not how this works. And you're going to go, I know, but Jesus is on the throne and he's in me. And now I can love you because the Father and the Son are one and I'm one with them. And we see that his prayer in, in John 17, in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus seemed to know that we'd be here today where we could easily define or redefine what it means to be a Christian. But to follow him, to behold his glory and to influence other people, persuade people to follow Jesus. That's why he prayed again in 24, Father, I desire they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. You've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In verse 25, even though the world does not know you, Church, we have to understand the world doesn't know God, and that's why he sent us to go. That's why he left us here. If it was about believing and being in heaven forever, no, it's about living the kingdom life now so the world would know. Maybe you're suffering and God's saying, I know it's hard, but remember that promise, teach them to obey and I'm gonna be with you to the end of the age. I'm with you, I'm in it with you. You're growing through this and the world's taking note and they don't know me, and maybe through that suffering and through that storm, I'm gonna reveal who I am. I'm gonna remind them that you not only believe, but you did good to those who didn't do good to you. And he says in verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus saved his harshest rebuke for me today and for you, for us. As we're in this era where where the challenge to live like Christ, well, we can be content to know the right thing and listen to podcasts or YouTube and here's where I stand and I'm against them. And But we're constantly saying, well, are we known by what we're for? Are we known by our love for others? Because in Matthew seven twenty six, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Everyone who hears these words of mine, the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You saw the devastation as we pray for Florida. The foolish people who built their houses on sand. And a storm comes and the wind blows and everything rages and the homes are washed away. And then eventually an engineer came along and decided, hey, stilts in concrete, we could actually make a go at this storm. It's like, how long did they take to figure that out? But as we see with flash floods coming, no one looks at that and goes, hey, this is a great place to put a house on sand because the storms of life are gonna come and wash it away. But Jesus says, hey, if you hear these words and do it, if you acknowledge that I'm Lord and you treat people this way, I'm gonna bless you for it. And over and over the fruit of the Spirit-filled life is loving others and putting their needs before your own. Everyone who heard these words and doesn't do them is a fool. As we look at the church, as we go out and do what God's prepared for us to do, it's the men and women who impacted the world, the greatest for God's kingdom, who didn't just believe the right thing, but did the right thing, especially when it cost them. Jesus' invitation to us so we can't be content just believing and claiming we're Christians. When the centurion shows up, are we able to use our time, our talents and our treasures to bless them, to pray for those who are persecuting us? And, and the Holy Spirit that fills and seals our lives gives us the peace to hand over the money, to hand over the food, to hand over the clothes and say, you know what? God in his infinite love and mercy is provided for me. And now I'm going to be a blessing to you. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows us his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So as Jesus prays that that love that God had toward us while we were sinning against him, while we were attacking, hurling insults, running as far and as fast as we could away from God, God sent his son to pay for our sin. So when we turned around, he turned us around and revealed, hey, I'm here, we... Can I trust in you? Yeah, it's already been paid for. Just believe and you're saved. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And you're going to start to think, act, and desire like my son. And you're going to love like my son. And so the the challenge to live like Christ is answered in this question. The answer really is telling if we're living like Christ or just believing what Christ said. What does God's love require of you this week? What does God's love require of you? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor that right now you're like, man, I think it's probably just, the only difference is football, when they watch it and when I watch it. Maybe they need to see some of the fruit. Maybe I need to engage in a conversation with them. And you're like, pastor, you're an evangelist. I know, but we're all called to do the work of the evangelist, so I just have it a little easier because that's my spiritual gift, but I'm praying for you When God puts that opportunity in your lap, you're not like, ah, I'm leaning into it. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through you guys. It's not me. What does God's love require of you? When someone needs shoes, are you willing to give them your shoes? When someone needs a jacket, are you willing to give them your jacket? When someone needs a car, are you handing them the keys? And is your heart prepared to give them the pink slip? I'm just saying, that's Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. When we talk about God's love and having that mark us as the church known by our love which is what jesus said it's not my vision it's jesus's expectation for us as believers rather as followers to do the loving thing especially when people are hating and insulting us so as we take communion now this is for believers who said i believe in jesus as my savior and i'm gonna do good especially when people don't do good to me i'm gonna bring my gifts to the table, I'm going to bring my time, my calendar and say, God, how do I build your church? How do I make disciples who make disciples here in preparation for when you send me there? And as we take communion, there's cups being passed around. If you need them, you could throw a hand up and we'll get them to you. I'm going to give you a minute to to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you the answer. Because I said, we, we kind of joked earlier, there was a pop quiz. You guys all passed, right? Everyone passes, just being honest. But this is really the the test that matters. Is the Holy Spirit going to guide you this week? Are you going to let him? Or are you going to listen to him? Let's start now. What does God's love require of you? Pray that prayer and let the Spirit speak to you and then I'll come up and, and close this in a minute.